Welcome to Skim This. If you've been to an airport recently, you may have noticed travel is crazy right now. We looked into different airlines, looked into different airports, and there was absolutely nothing available. Not even those like crazy $11,000 first class tickets that you hear about. And now, after a federal judge dropped the mask mandate on planes, trains, and other public transit this week, getting from point A to point B is going to get more complicated. We'll ask an expert how to avoid headaches as we plan summer vacation. Also this week, we're looking at what's next in the war in Ukraine, the latest in the battle between Disney and Florida, and why Netflix execs are freaking out right now. And finally, tomorrow is Earth Day. To celebrate, we'll skip posting a photo on Instagram of that hike we did that one time. And instead, we'll talk to someone living a climate-conscious lifestyle every day. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. This week, we've seen a lot of headlines that said the war in Ukraine has entered a new phase. And it's hard to imagine what a new phase of a war that's already caused so much death and destruction could look like. But we asked Shelby McGee, the associate director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, to help us break it down. She told us that phrase actually came from Russia's foreign minister, who isn't exactly the most trustworthy source. I would take anything that the Russian foreign minister or any Russian leader say with not even a grain of salt, just with the full salt shaker. Really, they're covering themselves because the war has not gone how they would like. They seem to have truly thought that they could blow into the capital in a couple days, take Kiev, overthrow the government, and that has not worked out. So they've had to retreat and regroup, and now they're reconcentrating their forces in the east and south. Russia is shifting its strategy in large part because there's an important deadline coming up. May 9th is Victory Day in Russia. And while Putin and his government can spin anything they want, it is a little hard to spin a major victory right now. So they're really giving themselves this narrative to say, this is what we intended all along. We haven't had a failure. This was the plan. Focusing on eastern Ukraine could give Russia a bit of an advantage for a few reasons. One is that the East is just geographically closer to Russia, so Russia can get supplies easier. Two is that Russia and Ukraine have already been fighting a war in the East for eight years in an area called the Donbass region. So Russia is already really familiar with that territory and how to fight there. And three, attacking the East hurts Ukraine economically because it's where the country's steel and coal plants are. This looming new military offensive in the East will only exacerbate an already dire humanitarian situation, as more than 5 million people have fled Ukraine and 7 million have been internally displaced. And Magid told us Ukraine will have to make difficult choices about how to defend itself going forward, because Russia isn't playing by any rules. Something that I've discussed with experts is that going forward, it's not just a simple calculation of military strategy and military might. The Ukrainians also have to think about how to save their civilians. We've seen what happens when the Russians take over control of Ukrainian territory. 
Moscow and the Kremlin and the Russian forces have superior supplies and equipment. So President Zelensky would face a difficult choice of risking having his army surrounded, potentially losing the army, which would risk protecting other parts of the country or giving up civilians to Russian control. So there's, there's serious concerns that they have to balance out all of these risks. This week, Russia started making small attacks in the east while it continued its advance on the key port city of Mariupol, a city that would provide Russia with a strategic land bridge between Russian-controlled Crimea and the Donbass region in the east. Russia also launched an intercontinental ballistic missile test that it said could carry multiple nuclear warheads. That test was basically a warning to the U.S. and Europe to think twice about threatening Russia. In response, U.S. officials said today they're sending another $800 million security package to Ukraine, following the separate $800 million package the White House announced last week. And across the pond, European countries have drafted a proposal to stop importing Russian oil. McGeed told us it's essential that Western allies continue to think about what support they can give Ukraine in the coming weeks. Really, what's needed right now, what's needed yesterday, what's needed last year, last month, is more weapons. The Western allies are doing a good job. We see packages continuing to roll out of heavy-duty weapons, but it's not enough. Conversations like this, I think, are critical because the world has a very short attention span. So I'm happy that we're still paying attention to Ukraine, of course, for bad reason. But this is not going to end, you know, in the next two weeks. May 9th is not going to be the end date. And there needs to be conversations like this about heavy weapons, but also tons of money. Let's switch gears to get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... Streaming giant Netflix suffered its biggest stock loss in nearly two decades, losing more than $50 billion in market value. Today's losses come after Netflix announced its first loss of subscribers in more than 10 years. Hey, Netflix, are you still watching? This week, the streaming service announced that they had lost 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter of this year, and that they're anticipating losing another 2 million subscribers by July. The company blamed competition from other streamers, like Disney Plus and Hulu, along with inflation and the fact that they pulled out of Russia and lost those users. Oh, and they also said people sharing their passwords was another big problem. Um, Netflix, we're feeling a little attacked right now. This week's announcement caused the company's stock price to drop 35%, its biggest loss since 2004. So to try to get things moving in the right direction, Netflix announced that it's open to offering a cheaper ad-supported subscription to entice those people who haven't wanted to pay up in the past. And last month, Netflix also said it had plans to start charging for password sharing, which is good news for your parents and maybe your ex. Either way, enjoy your free Bridgerton while you can. But whether those changes are enough for Netflix to make its Hollywood comeback remains to be seen. So stay tuned. Oh, and speaking of bad news for streamers, 
CNN's streaming service that just launched on March 29th, CNN Plus, looks like it'll be shutting down one month later. CNN spent $300 million launching the platform, but reportedly only got 150,000 subscribers. So it looks like they'll be sticking with cable, at least for now. Okay, next headline. Disney is about to say bippity-boppity-bye to its special tax status in Florida. This week, Florida lawmakers voted to revoke Disney World's privilege of self-governing at the Orlando theme park, which will likely have huge tax implications for the company. Under the old law, Disney essentially ruled the Magical Kingdom and was able to collect taxes, start construction projects, and more without having to get approvals from local government commissions. And Disney has operated with this special status for more than half a century and saved millions of dollars in the process. So why is the company not getting the royal treatment anymore? Recently, Disney leadership and Florida's governor Ron DeSantis have been on the outs. The two have been feuding since Disney condemned the controversial Don't Say Gay bill that became law last month and paused political donations in the state. Now, DeSantis looks ready to sign this new legislation that bumps Disney down from special tax status to regular. Welcome to our world, Walt Disney. Okay, next headline. One store in Atlanta is showing that an apple a day won't keep the unions away. Employees at an Apple retail store in Atlanta became the first at the company to file for a union vote. According to the Communication Workers of America, the union that would represent them, over 70% of the store's eligible employees showed interest in joining. They're asking for a base pay of at least $28 an hour and additional raises to offset inflation. And workers at at least one other Apple store in New York City are also planning to follow suit. Zooming out, Apple workers aren't the only ones riding the union wave in big tech. Google contractors in Kansas voted to unionize in March, and Amazon warehouse employees in Staten Island had a historic win earlier this month, becoming the first group of U.S. workers to unionize at the company. But as for whether this wave becomes a tsunami or stays small is still TBD. The Bureau of Labor Statistics announced that union membership was at a historic low in 2021. But that was before record high inflation and the momentum we've seen in 2022. And our final headline. More relief is coming to millions of student loan borrowers after a number of changes at the Department of Education. Here's the context. The Department of Education announced it canceled student loan debt for at least 40,000 borrowers and offered credits to 3.6 million more. So who does this apply to? People who were repaying under the income-driven repayment plan, which, according to an NPR investigation, was badly mismanaged by the Department of Education and the loan companies they hired. That investigation found that millions of people who were supposed to get their loans forgiven never did. And while some people will definitely be celebrating now, this announcement falls short of President Biden's campaign promise to cancel $10,000 in federal student loans per borrower. If this latest announcement applies to you, hang tight. The changes are set to show in the loan accounts of those who qualify by the end of the year. And for anyone who has federal student loans, your payments are still on pause until August 31st. <laughs> 
You know that Murphy's Law that says anything that can go wrong will go wrong? That's what international travel from the EU back into the U.S. was like for us. I was going on vacation last week, and at 11 p.m. the night before my flight, I got a notification that my flight had been canceled. I was flying from Newark Airport to Fort Myers for the weekend. It was raining, and they let us know that we weren't going to be able to take off. It seems like everyone has a travel horror story these days. We asked some of our skim colleagues if they'd had something go wrong at an airport recently, and they had some stories to tell. There was Alicia, who got her way home from Europe eventually. There were three, maybe four United staff members working and more than 100 people in line. We waited in line for two hours alongside our future flight mates, all getting the your flight is now boarding message before we'd even made it halfway through the check-in line. And as much as we love traveling, I am not sure we'll be doing it again anytime soon. And then there was Rachel, who was trying to get home from vacation after a canceled flight. So I book a new flight on a new airline. Fast forward a week later when I'm on my way back to New York, I show up at the airport in the morning for a mid-afternoon flight. And then over the next couple hours, my flight is consistently getting delayed. And so are many other flights. With no explanation, no reasoning, again, no communication as to why this is happening, my flight was delayed 15 hours. So I didn't end up taking off until one in the morning the next day. And then there was Madison. Getting stuck in Newark was just the beginning for her. The flight crew timed out. So we had now been on the plane for four hours. We finally got off the plane around 11.30. Keep in mind, the only food and drinks that had been passed out since we boarded at seven o'clock were probably around 10, 10.30. And it was a single Biscoff cookie and what the guy next to me described as a thimble of water. They told us it would actually be 7 a.m. that our flight would take off, but to leave our checked bags because they would transfer them from the old plane to the new plane. 3 a.m., I looked at my phone and there was a text saying the flight was fully canceled. But we went back to the airport to get my husband's bag because he had checked it. And the attendant in baggage claim said, oh no, wait, sorry, your bag actually ended up going to Fort Myers. Wow, I get so much anxiety listening to that. And now with summer wedding and vacation season coming up, we wanted to know what the heck is going on with travel right now? And what should we expect before we head to the airport? To get some answers, we spoke to Matthew Howe, the Senior Manager of Travel Intelligence at Morning Consult, an insights and research company. And he told us the travel industry has started to rebound from 2020, when U.S. airline passenger traffic dropped to a 36-year low. And now... 70% of people say they're going to take a vacation, and 50% of people say that they feel comfortable hopping on a plane. Two-plus years of pent-up demand, people are ready to get out and travel. But the airlines don't seem to be ready for them. This morning, travelers stranded all across the country. Travel experts are not mincing words. They're calling this a full-blown meltdown. Airline passengers in the UK have been told to expect delays to continue. If you've tried to get on a plane recently, you've probably seen long lines at security and check-in desks and people stranded as their flights get moved or don't take off at all. Earlier this month, over 10,000 flights got canceled or delayed because of weather during peak spring break season. And JetBlue announced they're cutting their summer flight offerings by up to 10% to avoid more disruptions. 
Howe told us, this hot mess express is mainly being caused by staffing shortages. Airlines kind of laid a lot of people off in the pandemic. Airports as well. I think there's a lot of attention right now on a shortage on pilots, but we're also seeing airports really struggle to get people back in and working. A lot of people forget that airports need people to help load the planes, bring the planes in, not just pilots. Also, TSA agents. I mean, I've seen TikTok videos and other places. You just see these huge, long lines of people trying to get through TSA. I think really going into the spring, we knew travel was going to be popular, but I don't think we knew how many people were going to get out and travel. If you're thinking, wait a second, didn't airlines get a lot of bailout money two years ago? And shouldn't that help solve this problem? You're right. But apparently, it's not that simple. I think that initially, the money went to holding employees in place. I think that that's what the original purpose of it was, to just kind of hold pilots, flight attendants, and other peripheral workers in place. But as the pandemic drug on and there was no end in sight, I think that Several airlines turned that kind of money that was given to them into stock buybacks and kind of buying back up their own stock. And I think that left a lot of people really disappointed. So high demand plus fewer workers has created a new normal for travel where you've got to pack your patients and maybe some Advil for a headache. But not everyone is willing to book their ticket and brave the airport just yet. This week, a federal judge in Florida struck down the mask mandate on planes, trains, and other public transportation. And while some people found out mid-flight and celebrated, others are pretty scared by this announcement. Immunocompromised people and people traveling with young kids who can't get vaccinated are likely to be more cautious or opt out of travel altogether for their own safety. But whether the mask mandate is gone forever is still TBD. The Department of Justice announced that they'll be appealing that judge's decision, and the CDC is still encouraging people to mask up on public transit. We should also point out another reason that people aren't booking a vacation just yet is because travel has gotten really expensive recently. Not only are we seeing kind of a lot of technical challenges and kind of limited capacity on the airline side, but also just we're seeing a lot of increase in ticket prices as well. I think we've seen a 20% rise in ticket prices for flights in April and I believe May as well compared to last year. So people may decide to save some money and stay home instead. As for the people who are planning trips, Howe told us a lot of Americans still have some hesitations about going abroad between quarantine restrictions, travel regulations, and the war in Ukraine. But he's expecting a huge spike in domestic travel. Howe's also seen a shift in the types of trips that people are taking. Think no more rushed long weekends where you fly in and fly out like you're on a SWAT team. People want to take their time. I'm seeing a lot of people interested in taking wellness trips. In Q1, we saw 27% of people say they planned on taking a wellness trip. And I think of wellness not only just in kind of doing like a meditation or yoga, but also just wellness in terms of like turning the page on the pandemic. I think other people are thinking about relaxation and spending times with friends and family, but that's also, in my opinion, rolled up into wellness travel. A lot of people are doing blended travel, you know, they're blending together their leisure and their business travel, where people are traveling for leisure and then they're opting to bring their laptop and either do a little bit of work during their trip or add a couple days while they're working remotely within a destination. So really, 
blended travel and wellness travel are two big trends we're seeing this year. If you're planning to go away this summer and want to minimize your stress levels, House got some tips for how to travel smarter. I would encourage people to kind of do a little bit of research, not only on kind of what do wait times and cancellations look like at your local airport. I know the TSA shows what the wait times look like in the lines currently, but also research the airline. What do cancellations look like? Spirit Airlines had a lot of cancellations. British Airlines is really struggling as well to meet demand. I also think that people should consider getting travel insurance as well. Maybe your airline cancels your flight and won't cover different kind of trip on the same day with a different airline. Travel insurance can really help you bridge that gap if your kind of flight gets canceled or you're kind of stranded somewhere. If you're eyeing a summer retreat this year, travel insurance and some good old fashioned planning ahead could be the difference between enjoying your pina colada on the beach or at the airport restaurant. French voters are heading to the polls this Sunday to decide who'll be their new president. Voting in the first round of the French presidential elections has ended with Emmanuel Macron and the far-right leader Marine Le Pen as the two candidates who go through into the runoff. These two candidates last faced off five years ago. Back then, Macron won around two-thirds of the votes, so it wasn't exactly a nail-biter. But this year isn't expected to be such a landslide, and recent polling shows Macron is maintaining a slim lead on Le Pen. So why are people watching this race so closely? And what's at stake this time? We'll explain in 60 seconds. Oh, and sorry in advance, but my French is Emily in Paris level bad. France's presidential election is making headlines because it's pitted two controversial candidates against each other. Macron, who's the current president, isn't exactly well-liked by a lot of working-class voters. He's been accused of implementing policies that benefit only the most wealthy people in France, with critics dubbing him the president of the rich. Excusez-moi? While Macron's opponent, Le Pen, has also got some baggage. Five years ago, in her last run for president, she touted some extreme far-right beliefs. And even though she's tried to say au revoir to some of her old positions, she maintains her signature anti-immigrant nationalism and has said she would implement strict rules for non-natives who seek French citizenship. Le Pen has also promised to ban the wearing of headscarves in public if she's elected, calling it an Islamist uniform. Oh, and we should also point out Critics have said she's friendly with Russian President Vladimir Putin, after a photo of them shaking hands five years ago was published in one of her campaign pamphlets this year. And in 2017, she accepted a loan from a Russian bank to partially finance her presidential run. Ooh la la, not exactly great timing for that to be coming to the surface. Still, Le Pen slightly toning down her far-right rhetoric seems to be working. She's polling a lot higher than she was five years ago. And that has some experts saying this feels like deja vu and making comparisons to the rise of other unexpected leaders in the West, like Boris Johnson in the UK and even Donald Trump in the US. As for what's at stake now? Well, France is the only nuclear power in the European Union. And when you combine that with an ongoing war in Ukraine that could threaten European countries, you get a lot of nervous leaders watching to see who wins on Sunday, 
concerned a Putin-friendly Le Pen could be coming into power. And more generally, that far-right movements across Europe could start gaining steam. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Friday is Earth Day. You know, the day where companies switch their logos to be green or when people you follow on Instagram post photos of their nice vacations. But as some people try to flex tomorrow, many others are actually trying to live a more climate-conscious lifestyle 365 days a year. Meet Lucia Preslack, who kicks off her weeks, like a lot of us, thinking about food. My Monday kind of evening ritual is just meal planning for the rest of the week. So it's sitting down and taking inventory of the dry goods and the produce that I have that will still be good in a few days' time, and then meal planning based on that and the food available. Lucia, a 29-year-old in Chicago, was recently profiled in the Washington Post's Climate Diaries series, which sheds light on what an average week between the good, the bad, the easy, and the hard is like for people who are trying to live a more eco-friendly lifestyle. For Lucia, her no-waste meal planning is just one of the things she does every week to keep her personal consumption down. And look, we know that big corporations and governments have a much greater impact on slowing climate change than individuals do. And that reducing our own carbon footprint is a drop in the bucket compared to the impact a handful of companies or country leaders could make. But Preslack told us, besides the obvious benefits for the planet, being climate conscious also has a ton of personal health benefits too. I have anxiety. Having a plan for things really helps calm that for me in general. And so I think having the ritual like ordering my imperfect foods or, okay, these are the days that I'm running all of my errands, so I need to plan out the things that I need to do just helps with a sense of order and organization that I don't think I would necessarily have otherwise if I wasn't consciously thinking about the best ways to to be more sustainable. But then that also just bleeds into regular life and just trying to be actively better for myself. And science has backed that up. Researchers from Australia, New Zealand, and the UK found that committing to a more sustainable lifestyle increases mindfulness and lowers levels of anxiety, stress, and depression. Not to mention, changing up your lifestyle gives you the opportunity to find new hobbies, like growing a garden or getting creative with your recipes. And you can have some fun in the process. I love thrifting, and I think that there's a type of almost adrenaline that comes with having a thrifting day and then like the thrill of the hunt and just being able to find books or pieces of clothing that you wouldn't necessarily, one, be looking for, but you get to fall in love with. And then also just being able to give something a new life, which I think is great. So decluttering and cleaning up our routines can also make our minds feel more clutter-free. And the good news is we don't need to buy a Tesla or install solar panels on our roof to feel those benefits. There will be those people out there who are able to make those big changes. That is amazing. And I commend them and just think that they are incredibly impressive. But for most people, it's just not a sustainable 
way to live. So I think as long as you are actively trying to do something, I think it's just kind of this peace of mind that I've done something. And it might not be the biggest thing, but at least I'm consciously thinking about it and contributing to living more sustainably and hopefully making a tiny bit of impact. So knowing that Lucia's pretty dialed in on tips and tricks to start living a more climate-conscious life, we asked her for some advice on where to start. Her first recommendation, make a plan for your next target run. For your personal care goods, so many companies now have recyclable containers for shampoo, conditioner, body wash. And if you just look for a similar product, but in a recyclable container, you can rinse that out, recycle it or reuse it. I think another thing that has really worked for me in terms of trying to eliminate food waste, this sounds very Pinteresty, but I put everything in clear containers so I can see how much of everything I have. I'm a short person, so if something gets pushed to the back, I won't see it. And then I'll think that I don't have it and buy new. And putting things in clear containers has helped me regulate buying dry goods especially. So that's something that I think is very easy and also aesthetically pleasing. And I think the third thing is just taking, you know, five minutes. For example, you want a new coffee table and just look on Facebook Marketplace and you never know like what you could find. You're going to be saving money and you get to give something a new home. And then you also can kind of brag to your friends, you'll never guess where I got this. Plus, that table on Facebook Marketplace won't get held up by supply chains and take three months to deliver. We'll call that a win-win. To check out a week in Lucia's life and get some other tips, head to her climate diary for The Washington Post. We'll also leave a link in our show notes. Has your phone been buzzing a lot more often than usual? And when you go to check, it's not your group chat or an amazing meme. It's just a spam text message. First of all, ugh, those suck. And second, you're not the only one. Over the past few years, we started getting way more spam calls. And now their evil twin has followed suit in the form of spam text messages. According to new data from RoboKiller, an app that blocks spam calls and texts, the average American received around 42 spam texts in the month of March. That's more texts than I get from my mom. I'm just kidding. I love you, mom. But it's still a lot. These texts follow what we'll call the typical spam playbook. They'll send links fishing for personal information that they'll use to scam you. Some texts look like shipping confirmations, while others can look like late notices for bills. And some are way less subtle, promoting weird weight loss programs or get-rich-quick schemes. Apparently, scammers have gone all in on text messages because they have high open rates, and because they're just as easy, if not easier, to send out in mass than robocalls. We'll also point out basically all forms of spam are on the rise. According to one robocall index, people got more spam calls in the month of March than they did in the previous six months. 
And one report from the Washington Post found that overall spam email frequency went up 30% from 2020 to 2021. And while these texts and calls and emails are annoying to get, they can also be dangerous. The FTC found that Americans lost over $131 million to text fraud schemes in the last year. So how do we make it stop? The easiest way to steer clear of messages like this is to be more careful about giving out your phone number. Maybe that 10% off on the app or at that website isn't worth a lifetime of unwanted texts. For a more immediate solution, you can go into the settings on your phone and filter out messages from unknown senders. Or you can go all in and block every number that sends you a spam message. You can also forward spam texts to the number 7726 and put yourself on the national do not call list. And above all else, don't respond to any of the messages or click links they may send. You don't wanna give scammers any reason to think your number is active. Stay smart about sharing your personal information. And on the bright side, this could be the excuse we need to stop checking our phones 24 seven. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Sejean Coriellis. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.